Hello. Hello, is that Pedro? I'm coming out. Kind of bringing back something which is made in a way that is no longer made, so at the very least you're revealing what was covered up by posterior layers. So yes, I do have the sense of bringing back the past when I'm kind of working on those things. You do have lots of time to sort of think and dream at the same time, so you do think a lot about sort of the person who made it and uh, sometimes I get very excited when I find fingerprints of the person who made it so like on the gold powders very often it's, it happens very easily an accident that you touch and your fingerprints are there forever I'm so close to that person who did it and there's like a little fingerprint of them so. it's quite physical as you can see so do you sometimes spend all day doing this? sometimes I do yes I am Pedro de Costa Felgueras, historical paint specialist and lacquer. I specialise in English as well as Oriental lacquer and 18th century paint techniques. Yeah, but it's beautiful already, just I don't know. It's a mixture between food and lipstick almost. Very tactile. You know, modern paint is rubbish. You know, however good it is, is the majority, the bulk of it is plastic, really. What I feel is that they have the inclination to try to adapt it to make it more modern and more practical. And that was never my intention, ever. I really wanted to find out how they were done initially, originally. And my paint takes three days to dry and takes maybe a month to harden, even a year, depending on the pigment. But that's what old paint did, you know, people do have a different expectation nowadays that even if they don't use historical paint that they still expect it to behave like modern paint. And it won't behave like modern paint, but it's not like modern paint, it's much nicer, it's got a, a richness and a texture you won't get on any, you know, hex shell or flat oil sort of that you can buy from off the shelf. So so my, my intention was always to discover how it was done and you know, understanding all the different finishes and the different pigments so they kind of behave with different mixtures and I was never trying to be modern. I mean there's always one thing which is common in all paint in all, in all, all countries that you know something that's been done since prehistory when sort of the caveman was painting murals which is you have to grind your pigment with a medium. I mean paint is basically that, it's a pigment and a medium and then you do things that change the way it dries, the way it looks and stuff. But, you know, the very basic state is it's sort of common you know, anywhere. And then you've got things, colours and pigments which are found locally in one place more than others. Um, and, you know, and very often the colours get the names of where they were found, like Oxford Yellow, Naples Yellow, or Terre Verte, because it probably comes from somewhere in France, and then there's Siena from Italy. And I think you can use a sense of smell for when you're working on old pieces as well. I think um, I do a lot of scratching and sniffing, really, <laughs> to find out what materials they use, because it's very important to know what was used in order to be able what, uh, de deciding with what kind of treatment you can do. So you can scratch it to see if it's shellac-based or if it's 
oil-based or water-based or if it's got lead or not lead. And yeah, you can do a, a certain amount of scratching and sniffing very carefully, really. <laughs> but yeah, you do, you do get the sense of what material is there by smelling it. You have to think about the emotional side, maybe the color and then the practical side of the technique of what to do with that. So it's a mixture of the two, really. It's not, it's not, and it's not something that just anyone could do. Actually, my early memories of smell is, in Portugal, kind of a mixture of low tide and drains, really. <laughs> it's strange, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what I remember first. I don't know, I think Lisbon is a tidal, it's got a tidal river. Well, in the 70s when I was growing up, it was after the, after the revolution, I think things weren't so organised as they are now, and I think maybe some of the drains did go to the sea. <laughs> and uh, But I think he's that mixture of sea and sort of that... Mud you get at the bottom of the a tidal river that sort of creates that smell. Really. I grew up in Lisbon, but my family coming from the countryside, I kind of visit my grandparents quite a lot. Both my grandmothers, they lived in rural Portugal, so there's lots of smells of food. There's lots of smell of sort of fruit and vegetable in allotments in Portugal. Remember the scent of crushed tomato leaves, for example, which is very, another very early childhood memory in terms of smell. I remember wet straw for my um, grandmother's tables. and uh, In fact, when I walked into one of the workshops that makes the raffia lime brushes, he kind of wets them to bit them on a kind of a comb, on a metal comb. And immediately I was transported back to my childhood in the north of Portugal with a stables and the hoxes and, and the pigs, really. <laughs> and um, also on that village where she lived, there was um, the biggest sort of weekly market of people that come f and sell the sort of vegetables that they grow themselves. So, so there's lots of early associations with memory and food. And it is changing a lot, but it's still there if you look for it. And that market I was talking about is still there, and people are still growing their vegetables. Uh, I think even more now. So they are there, but they're not so obvious and so on your face as they used to be before. So you kind of, but if you go looking for them, they, they are there, you know. Last time I was there, I remember going to the fish market with my mother and I was completely flabbergasted, just so taken aback by it because it's just so abundant and so, so fresh and so really beautiful. And you don't really have that in London. And but for them, it's like it's, it's almost taken for granted that they've got all of that. And, and I didn't really notice that until I left. Another very typical smell of Portugal is, uh, and Lisbon in particular, is the smell of grilled fish, grilled sardines. is a, quite um, uh, important in the Portuguese psychic, I think. In fact, I had a um, party in London celebrating one of the saints, which is like a, usually a, a popular feast in, in Lisbon, St. Anthony's Day on the 13th of June. And um, I did um, a thing with Lila in our old circus and... The Portuguese just flocked in, and we didn't really invite anyone. Just like word of mouth, and it was like full, and it's just like sold out of sardines in three seconds. This is um, a pigment called English red, so it sort of originally came from England. It's just an ochre found in the ground. It's a very basic color. It's, it's, it's like it's an ore, really. So it's like dark, like gold and silver and any other precious metal 
and you used to have those vines on the ground and sort of different Bavarian colour. And they, they, there are a couple of mines in the UK, which is, I think they have been closed, but I, I think some of them have been sort of slowly kind of coming back or trying to. So the, the kind of colour used to be found a lot on all the estates, and they used to paint the stables in the kind of, sort of this red, sort of a hawk's blood red. So it's more known as, but it's basically that pigment. You get the jar, put the pigment on the pestle and mortar, a little bit of oil. Mix it up a bit, the spatula, and then you get the pestle and mortar and you grind away. The smell is the smell of turps, pine turpentine, and um, beautiful, clear linseed oil. So there's a very fresh smell about it. It's like different pigments to smell differently. If you've got the herd pigments like the ochres, you want to mix them up. Depends if what are you doing if you're making an oil-based paint or if you're doing um, a water-based paint like Distemper. They they do smell differently. They smell a bit like mud, really. Actually, when it smells a bit like after rain, when it rains for after not raining for a long time and the ground is dry and it smells of sort of fresh wet rain. Um, and then you've got arsenic, which is very kind of intense, kind of hits in the back of, the, back of your head. And you've got, what else have you got? And a lead has got a very specific smell as well. Yeah, they, they all smell differently. It smell, sepia smells kind of fishy because it's made of um, the ink of cuttlefish. I mean, there's ivory black, which is made of crushed, crushed bones. And, but some of them do, and uh, sepia is quite, yeah, fishy. Um, what else is smelly? Smells lovely. And then what's that? Oof. I think this is shellac grains or wax. It doesn't smell so much anymore, but it should do. If you if I grate a little bit, it'll smell. Okay, and then there's dragon's blood. If you want to smell that, it doesn't smell of anything. In fact. It's not real dragon, of course, it's just a resin. But because it came from Asia and was used to make a red varnish to go on top of Japaning. I mean, uh, there's, there's a smell of lacquer as well. Japanese lacquer smells like slightly cheesy. Well, very cheesy, actually, very, like a very strong French cheese. And I'll get some of that out. Okay. Don't touch that one because you might be allergic. Look. Mm. Oh, it really is. Like it's like camembert that's yeah. just turned. Yeah. So that's you notice this Japanese lacquer. <laughs> There's that? no doubt about it. What's that made from? It's the sap of a tree. Yeah. And that's kind of the that one hasn't been very much treated. It's like the one you use for undercoats. And as it gets refined, it gets less smelly. But that's that's a very smelly one. It doesn't smell so much. Very mild. More, a bit more like coffee though. Parmesan. Mm. Yes. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of smell in all the things I use. So. But one of the pigments you get is from um, a very extraordinary sounding man in England. And that's the blue verditor pigment. It's, it's a very modern looking, vibrant blue. But he's a very, he's one of the earliest imitations of lapis lazuli. So he's got that quality of lapis lazuli, but I'd say a little bit brighter, I think. According to all manuals, you have to 
do it in the winter and bury it in the frozen ground for about a month because to fix the colour because otherwise it goes from blue to green if you don't do that. So there's that man in England sort of doing that. that kind of, he's, he's very, it's very difficult to get hold of him and he just, he appears when he appears and when he appears you buy it and you know, you know, you know it's good. There's a bit of a mystic behind those pigments because <laughs> they're difficult to get hold of. And, I moved to London in 1990, in January 1990. I think the smells in London are more related to work because I've always kind of, there's more work in here than actually I did in Portugal. So it seems like Portugal is my holiday place and London is my workplace. So the smells in here have to do with my, my work, my paints, my the solvents, the pigments and all of that. And the materials I use for. It's a, it's, there's an interesting mixture between the Portugal and, and the English side of myself because it's all that kind of, Having been brought in, brought up in Portugal, I, you know, surrounded by old things, I, I did get that love of the new, of the of the old stuff, the antique. And I, I remember sort of looking around in churches in Portugal, just thinking, "Wow!" I was just gazing at everything, and I wasn't really aware of it while I was there because there's so much of it and there's so much taken for granted. And it wasn't really until I got into this country and started sort of going to junk markets and appreciating all the heritage movement of preserving all things that I really got to love for it and actually everything I've learned about it has been in Britain and I've picked up in very ancient sort of manuals on paint techniques and sort of experimented with them and experimented recipes as they were done back in the 17th, 18th century and so so everything I kind of really know is all it's actually very British in fact but Well, I moved, I was very young, I came with a rucksack, you know, really just, you know, when you're 19, you just, just do whatever you feel like doing, so, so I did that, and I just um, had very jobs, like, you know, working in a cafe and working in shops, but then, you know, it gets a bit boring after a few years, and I just, you know, I was going to the markets every, every weekend and buying old pieces of junk antiques and sort of looking at them and thinking, hmm, I'd like to be able to change that and make it look good again, and sort of preserving what's there. So I ended up doing um, a conservation restoration course in, but it was just in decorative surfaces, wasn't it? So I tried many techniques like veneering and gilding and japaning, which is English lacquer. And I think then there was like a very inspirational teacher that came over and uh, one day and sort of she had uh, lots of samples of different types of lacquer and painted boxes. And she, I just remember, remember her holding one up and saying, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> She had lots of books, amazing sort of books from the 17th century, and we just took them and read the recipes. And, you know, the first job was actually understanding what they're trying to say because it's written in a very f flourished sort of English, and so it wasn't very obvious. And, you know, there isn't like a list of ingredients or anything. It's like a quite a poetic te text, and you have to sort of fish out what they... And, you know, sometimes you do miss things, and some things don't exist anymore. You have to sort of try to understand what they want to do with that. So, And I think most of my... What I do nowadays is from those years I spent sort of experimenting and discovering and, and finding out materials and finding out where they came from. And a lot of them actually come from via Portugal, from Brazil, for example. Whenever you work with an old house, there's always a certain... depends what stage you get in before or after the restoration, there's always a certain sort of musky smell about it. And when that musky smell gets sometimes overwhelmed by... The smell of the paint itself. Uh, I think when people, for example, when they walk into my house, the first thing they say smells really nice. And, you know, I'm not aware of it because I'm there every day, but smells of turps and linseed oil. And it's what sort of old houses smell like. 
I may be at the wrong entrance, I'm at the ticket entrance, but I'll, walk, I'll just walk around the corner. Is there like a main door? Okay, okay. Good morning, did you find a place all right? Yeah, easy, easy. Big wedding cake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't touch the walls anywhere. <laughs> okay, that's the main thing. Close that. Strawberry Hill was the first Gothic revival domestic house built by Horace Walpole, who was the son of Sir Robert Walpole, the first uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain. He was dedicated, if you like, to saving medieval architecture from what he saw as a destructive Palladian uh, neoclassical style. And so he set about taking inspiration from the Gothic buildings of uh, Great Britain and Europe, many of which he'd seen on the Grand Tour, um, in order to create a house which was entirely unlike any others that were being built at the time. So in the daytime, the shepherd's going to disappear into the wall so you get a beautiful view of the garden. It's yeah. amazing. It's like such so, so modern. <laughs> completely authentic, completely 18th century, completely, completely English. My name's Nick Smith. I'm the house director at Strawberry Hill House. In 2007, Strawberry Hill Trust got a 120-year rent-free lease on the building. And we've spent our time since then really bringing the building back to its um, 18th century blender, so one doing the decorative schemes of the 19th and 20th centuries. And in doing so, we've been conserving and reinstating uh, wooden carving, plaster work, wallpapers, gilding, um, and of course um, some wonderful um, paint colours uh, throughout the building as well. Um, so, so the walls are lined in a canvas first and then they put paper and sometimes I paint, the blue one I painted and the green one I painted, this one's going to flock wallpaper like a, a red one, really, really bling on your face. I can show it to you there. Well, you always know when Pedro is working here because there are particular smells that go along with his work. What's this in here? Well, like... this, is, this, is, this is rubbish, rubbish glue granules. So I soaked it overnight and it's ready to be melted today. The rabbit skins, for example, that he uses in producing the paints kind of pervade the building and, and, and can be detected from several rooms away. As you begin to near the areas in which he is working, it's probably unkind, but it is a kind of almost a, a, a smell of rotting or smell of death to my mind, which is quite interesting in this spooky Gothic building as well. Quite appropriate in some ways. Well, the smell is kind of, I don't know, a bit like flesh, smelly feet, maybe. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I like it. The first time I caught him sort of spraying the entire house with hair freshener, which is the worst thing you can do because it'll stick to the walls and damage everything I've been doing throughout the day. So. But then I was explaining how lovely it is, like completely natural, biodegradable and non-toxic, so I think they, they kind of learn not to love it now. <laughs> I hope. But they, they all know me by my first name, all the volunteers. I, I wonder why. Because <laughs> um, when I'm in a the house, they know. 
just by smelling it. It's a very organic smell. Really lets, you know, the kind of way that the smell moves around the building lets you really know that something's going on. I think it's very interesting to experience the building in the same way as its previous owners may have done. And often when people that look after historic buildings think about that, it might be in terms of making sure that the decoration looks right or that the correct kind of furniture is out or one might think about having musicians in part of the building playing music of the era. But I think, actually, the experience of having had Pedro working here using these very authentic materials has led us all to think quite a lot about what it would have been like to be Horace Walpole living in this house in the 18th century, constantly building and decorating and redecorating. There would have constantly been builders and painters and decorators here. And this smell would have been part of his life, just as it is now part of the life of people who are working here and part then of the lives of those who are coming to see the building uh, as um, tourists as well. Well, I think I got to know, I don't know if the person personally wrote it, but the mentality of an era when people thought in a different way. You know, there's, there was a different attitude to, to work and how to make things and what there is now. You know, they, these people that wrote those manuals, they probably work for very incredibly wealthy people. And yes, you do need that because it does take a lot of time to do all that stuff. But I don't think... The money was the main concern about it. I think those, when you read those old books, you feel there's a certain passion, a certain love for what they, they are doing and why they... There's a great respect for the materials. However little knowledge they had back then, they want to use them in a, to maximise their effects and create sort of extraordinary effects. This has been Life in Sense with Pedro da Costa Felgueres. I'm Joe Barrett and I was joined talking to Pedro by Odette Toilette. This half hour on the smell of 18th century paint is actually only one of a whole series we've made about smell in the 18th century. His historian Will Tullett on why paint, as we've been hearing about here, was a significant part of the smellscape of the 18th century. We didn't even push him on this. They seem to be a scent that comes up again and again in diaries and letters that's, that seems to always be recorded um, because it's so evocative and, and different and just stems from the fact that most of the smells we get are just ones that are unusual. People don't record normal smells. They're not interesting, they're not different, they're not exceptional, they're not worth mentioning. So it's always the unusual that we get at. You can get that interview in which we also discuss the early perfume industry, the smell of 18th century London, as well as some of the difficulties involved in being a historian of smell on lifeincense.com.